Well, there's quite a history to that hymn, isn't there? Yeah, wow, originally written for children, imagine that. Maybe uh, once in a bit you hear uh, on Wednesday nights as they read a story about how we got a hymn, maybe you hear the word dissenter. And uh, that was a common term given to um, uh, churches, Christians, pastors who, who were not part of the Church of England. Uh, they were branded as dissenters. And so um, Baptists got that uh, branding as a dissenters. Well, let's open up our Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. Now, in chapter 13, Paul gave us four final admonitions that we've entitled, Be Careful. In verses 1 to 4, he told us to be careful to maintain Christian love. In verses 5 to 8, he told us to be careful to maintain Christian submission. In verses 9 to 15, he told us to be careful to maintain Christian doctrine. And we studied that last Wednesday. Well, tonight we're going to look at the last of the four admonitions, and it's entitled this, Be Careful to Maintain Christian Behavior. And so this will take us through to verse 19. All right, let's, uh, let's look to the Lord once more in prayer. Our Father, we humble ourselves and bow our hearts before your mighty throne and your majesty, your sovereignty. We thank you again, Lord, for all of your wonderful gifts. Even the, the smallest is a, a pleasure and a treat. And we thank you, O oh Lord. Now we pray that you'd help us to uh, glean that which we need for our lives, for our, our families, Lord, to be able to live for you successfully in this crazy world that we find ourselves in. Our Father, speak with our hearts tonight. Help us to yield to you our uh, submission, our love and obedience, and of course, our praise and worship. And so, Lord, bless now as we study Hebrews. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, let's see here. Um, to be careful to maintain Christian behavior, this little section breaks itself into three nice little sections. The first one is this. Christian behavior includes good works. Good works. Uh, chapter 13, of course, and verse 16. But to do good. Um, we'll just pause there for a moment. Paul is talking about good works. Now, remember, he's kind of wrapping it up here. There's not much ink left in his pen, and he's soon to bid us all farewell. And uh, the final amen uh, is coming, and he's uh, telling us here to do good works. Now, uh, you might want to write down a little reference in your Bible. You could write this reference down, Titus 3.8. Titus 3.8, it says this, This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. And we're not just talking about some kind of profit here on earth, um, uh, but it's profitable in heaven as well. 
uh, profitable on earth because God blesses. And we're interested in a profit to God and profit from God. And good works are what we're called upon to do. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved unto good works. Every Christian, man, woman, young person, as long as they have Jesus in their heart, their life ought to be characterized by good works. You say, well, what kind of good works? Well, that's where you have to go to God and have to read the scriptures and let the Holy Spirit lead you. But uh, there's a lot of good works uh, available, and uh, many of them even right here in the context of the local church. And so this is very important. Uh, if you've ever read Ephesians chapter 6, when he goes through the pieces of armor, one of the pieces of armor is called the breastplate of righteousness. And I suggest to you that what he's talking about is good works, that uh, living a righteous life, uh, the practical uh, side of Christianity, uh, good works, very important. Now, some, of course, drop the, the spiritual for uh, the good works part, and uh, they get involved in like a social kind of a gospel. We believe in a spiritual gospel that saves men's souls, but we also believe in good works. Every Christian is uh, commanded, really, to uh, live a life of good works. You and I do not have the command of God or the excuse from God to uh, uh, sit out on the good works. We all need to be doing them. Uh, now, maybe some can do uh, some things that others can't. That's fine. But everyone can do something. There's a job for everyone to do. Uh, make, make no mistake about that. That's very, very important. Paul says in Hebrews 13, 6, 16, but to do good and to communicate. Not just uh, good works, but the communication. Now, this is how he speaks of the grace of giving. And truly, giving is a grace. It's a grace I think we get from God. It's a grace we need to ask God for. Giving is very important. Well, why do we have to give? Why, why do we have to give? Because God so loved the world that he gave. And we are to be followers of God as dear children. We're to be like God, be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And God is a giver. And uh, that's something very important for his children, to be like him. And so to do good and to communicate. Now, this talks about tithes and offerings. It refers to faith promise for missions. He says, but to do good and to communicate, forget not. Now, why would he say that? because of our tendency to forget. That's why. You and I live a busy lives. But you know something? A hundred years ago, they lived busy lives. And I'll tell you a secret. A thousand years ago, people lived busy lives too. Say, so how could they have lived busy lives a thousand years ago? Because a lot of the Christians uh, were under um, the thumb of some kind of uh, earthly lord. A lot of them were uh, still in kind of a slave uh, environments. Many of them, although not slaves, were, were badly treated as servants and employees and they made very little and so they had to work 12 14 hour days um, the exploitation of uh, child labor also has been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and so um, um, people have been living busy lives everyone lives a busy life well most everyone in every um, every generation it seems and it's easy to forget to do good works it's easy to forget to communicate and so because we get so busy uh, that we forget we need here's the thing we will forget that there is a need to give 
and we'll just get so focused on our own little lives and maybe our, our immediate family, we'll forget that there's a life outside that God's called us to. We'll forget that there's a need for giving. Something else that we might forget is there's a divine supply for giving. Here's a little sermon within a sermon. A need for giving, as we look around and we see the need, a supply for giving, and Paul told us, but my God is able to supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, so that ye having all sufficiency in all things may abound unto every good work. So there's the supply. We see the need, but sometimes we say, whoa, uh, hey, I'd love to help, but what can I possibly do? That's where God's supply comes in. This is borne out beautifully in Faith Promise Missions, where we go to God day after day and week after week, and then we come into the missions conference with some kind of idea as to what God would have us give. God would lay an amount on our heart. Sometimes it's a small amount, sometimes it's a larger amount, but it's God who lays the amount on our heart. And if God lays the amount on our heart, you can be sure that God will supply that. Whatever God calls you and I to do, he will always supply the grace to do it. If God told you to jump through the wall, remember your part is to jump. It's God's part to get you through the wall. Whatever God leads you to do, he'll always give you the grace to be able to fulfill. Always, without exception. The will of God will never lead you to where the grace of God cannot keep you. And so a little mini sermon within a sermon on giving is the need. Now there's a big need to be able to get missionaries around the world. And we're just barely scratching the surface. As a little church, God has enabled us to do so much, but yet we're still barely scratching the surface. So we see the need. How can we get the supply? God says, I'll supply. Trust me for it, and I will be your riches of, in, of storehouse. I will supply. So we see the need for giving, the supply for giving, and then there's the blessings of giving. Because whenever we obey God, he blesses it back to us. We see that very clearly when it comes to tithing. Bringing all the tithes into the storehouse that there be me, may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open to you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. And God is still fulfilling that promise today. After thousands of years, he is still keeping his word I've never seen it fail. Uh, I've been tithing now since before I got saved, and I've never seen God to fail to meet my needs. And any Christian that tithes by faith, I have never known any Christian to go bankrupt or fall off the edge of the earth because they, you know, they were tithing and they, everything fell apart on them. In fact, some of the uh, uh, fabulously uh, wealthy uh, Christian men and women in business started off tithing. There's plenty of stories about that. But the point of the matter is, God's word is still true. So when it comes to, to giving, Paul, remember, is wrapping up this fantastic, fabulous book, and he's, he's throwing at us now the real nuggets of gold. And he says here uh, that we are to uh, be careful to maintain Christian behavior, which involves, includes good works. To do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Now, a sacrifice is something that you give wholly over to God. 
Can you imagine uh, a Christian who comes and tithes and then a week later comes and says, I, I, I changed my mind. I want my tithe back. I, I want to buy a boat. I'm going to need that money. So I want my tithe back. They never gave it over to God then, did they? When you give something over to God, you don't run and get it back. You've given it to God. Um, sometimes people do that in life. They'll come and they'll give you something, and then later they'll come back and they change your mind. Or they'll, they're upset with you and they want it back now. I gave it to you, I know, but I want it back. Give it to me back. I, I don't want you to have it anymore. I'm upset with you. Give it back to me. When we give a sacrifice to God, it's wholly given over. Uh, when the uh, Old Testament Jew who loved God brought a sacrificial gift, an animal or some food or something, and brought it to the temple, that animal, its, its life was, was forfeited, the neck was cut, the blood was shed, and this animal was put on the, the altar and wholly consumed. And I'm telling you, after that knife went through the neck, the giver of that gift could no longer get that back. That life was given. And now the lifeless body was consumed with flame and uh, given as a burnt offering to God. God doesn't call upon us to do that today. All that's been done away. We're under a new testament, a new covenant with God. We're no longer under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, we're under the New. Now we've studied that and studied it and studied it in Hebrews, all through Hebrews. And if you've been following it along, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, uh, I'd like you to take a look, please, at verse 15 once again here in the chapter. Uh, Paul wrote and said, By him, therefore, let us offer, now that's by Jesus, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And so here we see that the sacrifices are praise and thanksgiving, and they're to be given continually. And the, the times when your gift of praise and your gift of thanksgiving to God is most meaningful, it's when it's hardest to give. When it's hardest to give praise, when it's hardest to give thanksgiving, that's when it means the most to God, because that's when it has, uh, let's say, it has blood on it. You've really sacrificed to be able to, to do that. When things go wrong, as they sometimes do, when the road you're trudging um, seems all uphill, and the funds are low, and the debts are high, and you want to smile, but you have to sigh, right? You have days like that where things don't go your way, things go against you. Sometimes things blow up or the bottom drops out or something happens and your first reaction is, oh no, or oh why? Well, in times like that, by faith, if you give praise to God, even though you don't understand it, you give thanks to God, even though you don't feel very thankful, and yet by faith you do it, that's when it means the most to the Heavenly Father because it's showing your childlike love and trust in Him. And so those, those are sacrifices for sure in verse 15. But now in verse 16, Paul is talking about another kind of sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of giving, giving to support God's causes. Don't give to support the devil's causes. Give to support God's causes. When you give to support missions and when you, you give to help out worthy causes, that pleases God. If you go into McDonald's and give them $100, $500, that's not a sacrifice unto God. 
you're making that uh, clown Ronald McDonald wealthy, and uh, that's not a work of God. But when you uh, help a, a fellow Christian, uh, when you uh, support something um, uh, at church, a, a project or something like that, we're looking to raise some money to, to help a missionary or a special project, and you're part of that, and you give to that, that is pleasing in God's sight. These are good works. So giving to support his causes. Now watch this carefully in this verse 16. And, and you show me where I go wrong. I'll read it again. Okay, you, you follow with me in verse 16. And you, you look for where I make the mistake. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Now where did I make the mistake? There's an adjective there, isn't there? And what is it? He is well pleased. That takes the, the, uh, the word uh, pleasure and brings it to a whole new height of meaning, a whole new arena. God is not just pleased. He is overjoyed. He is well pleased. And you know that feeling. There are times when someone may do something for you and it, it, makes, you, it makes you content, makes you happy. And then there are times when they do things and you're just over the top with joy. And that's how God feels when we give to support his causes. So in verse 15, you've got um, sort of the, the spiritual by faith. In verse 16, you've got the tangible, the physical by faith. But it's all for God's glory. It's all for his honor. And Paul, remember, is summing things up. He's only got a few verses left to share with us. And he's, he's putting it right on the line. He said, to do good and to communicate, forget not. Don't ever forget this, he says, because here's the reason for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And so what kind of giving? Financial giving is one way of giving, but there are other ways of giving as well. There's, of course, financial giving, but listen, there's food giving as well, food giving. Now, for example, the students at British Columbia Baptist College need food. They need to be fed. And so uh, as you bring food in for the college, that's another way of giving. And not only is financial giving well-pleasing in God's eyes because you're giving to his causes, but food giving is well-pleasing in God's eyes because now you're giving to his students, you see? his future missionaries, his future pastors, and so on. And so, uh, uh, again, there's other ways of giving as well. Listen, there's ride giving, where someone needs a ride into church. Or maybe a Christian needs a, a ride to uh, get to, to a medical appointment. And you do this for the Lord. You become the Lord's taxi. And you say, I'll, I'll do it, I'll give you a ride. Our bus ministry... Um, Tadala is, um, he's setting his face toward Jerusalem like a flint. <laughs> and he is uh, really hunkering down to uh, build our bus ministry. He's got a burden on his heart for our bus ministry. And I asked him, okay, now you tell me what we need. He says, bus drivers. We need bus drivers. And so uh, there's a, a ministry, a driving ministry, driving, giving, financial giving, food giving, driving or ride giving. You see, there's different ways of giving that a Christian can give. And there are others as well. But the point is, with all these things, God is not just pleased. He's very pleased because it's cost you something. 
It's cost you your time. It's cost you your talents. It's cost you your treasures. And with this kind of giving to his causes and to his people, he's not just pleased, he's overjoyed. As a parent, when someone does something nice for one of your children and, uh, oh, buys them something special for their birthday or just, you know, they've graduated and so here's something, some kind of gift or some, something special. As a parent, you are overjoyed that someone would take the time and, and do that for your son or for your daughter. And God is not just pleased, but he's well pleased when we support his people and his causes. Now, just for fun, um, keep your finger there in Hebrews and turn back to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. There we are. Chapter 3. Chapter 3. And I'd like you to see something else with which God is well pleased. So we just saw that with the sacrifice of our lips, with, with praise and with thanksgiving, God is pleased with uh, um, doing good and communicating uh, different forms of giving. He is well pleased. We just saw that. Now in Colossians 3 and verse 20, I'd like you to read the verse out loud together with me. Children, obey your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. I don't think we had half the people reading that time. Let's try it again, shall we? Everyone there? Colossians chapter 3? Everybody? Okay, I'll be watching to see if your lips are moving. Here we go. Let's read it together. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Now, is it just pleasing to the Lord if children obey their parents in all things? Is that right or is that wrong? That's wrong, isn't it? Because God is more than just pleased. He's what? Well pleased. You see the difference? Yes? Uh-huh, yes? Okay, it's important we see this because the way God has set up the family, particularly the Christian home, when the children render obedience to their parents, it makes God so happy. He's over the top. Because what happens in so many homes and families? The children do or do not obey their parents in all things. Which is it? I can't hear you. How many think that in the average family in the world that the children obey their parents in all things? Raise your hand if you think the average. Okay, how, if you think the average do not obey their parents in all things and you know the answer as well as I. And what a difference it is when God has to look at some families that are so disheveled, so dysfunctional, that there's uh, no harmony. Christ is not the head of those homes. Uh, there is a war-torn territory af after you cross the threshold into these homes, uh, so-called, and families, so-called. There are a bunch of people biologically connected, but I'll tell you what else connects is fist to jaw as well. They got World War III and World War IV going on in a lot of homes. A lot of them become strangers as they sit at the breakfast table. Strangers. Can you imagine that? Because all of the kids are on their devices and there's mom and dad on their devices and they're all maybe at the same table, but they don't even look at each other. Uh, except for the odd word of pass this or pass that. Uh, oh, got to go. And off they go. And then they come home and they to their different corners of the house. It's like stranger city. 
They're, they're strangers under one roof. That is a common problem in a lot of families today. And so when trouble arises, uh, it's, it's not just trouble, it's big problems. There's no unity. Christ tends not to be the head of those homes. And so in a home where Christ is the head of the home, mom and dad are trying to live for the Lord, and the children render obedience in all things, I'm telling you, it puts God over the top. He sees that, and he is so happy with that. That makes God so happy. It doesn't have to be a wealthy family. Today, we put far too much importance on money. We think, oh boy, everyone's got to have two and three jobs. Every one of you, get out there and find two jobs at least so that we can buy this great big mansion. Forget that. That's not where life is at. Jesus said that a man's life consisteth not in the the things that he possesseth. It's not found in the abundance of things. The more things you have, the more things you have to worry about. The bigger the house you have, the more maintenance, the more house cleaning, spring cleaning, fall cleaning, the more taxes you have to pay, the more you have to worry about security, who's going to be breaking into your house. You can't go away and not leave someone there to look after the house. Uh, the, The more things you have, the more burdens you have with it. Boy, there's something to be said for a simple life. You know, when you don't have money, one thing you don't have is worries about someone stealing it, right? Because you don't got any. And that's a, good, that's a good thing sometimes. But here, what pleases God is when the children yield submission to the parents. Now, this actually brings us to verse 17 of Hebrews. Let's go back there now. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Verse 16, we talked about uh, Christian behavior, including good works. And verse 17, Christian behavior includes submission to God-given spiritual leaders. And so chapter 13, verse 17, look what he says. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Now, right away, some people think, well, they're talking about the government, the mayor and the prime minister and the chief of police and people like that. And we're to submit ourselves to them. But I suggest to you that is not what Paul is talking about. Because if you look on in the very next words, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account. Now, the prime minister doesn't watch for your souls. The mayor doesn't watch over your souls. The chief of police doesn't watch over your souls. Hmm? So, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Just look back at verse 7 of the same chapter. 13 and verse 7. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God. The mayor doesn't speak to you the word of God. The prime minister doesn't speak to you the word of God. Why, it's their pastor who speaks to you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Now, we dealt with this a few weeks ago. If the pastor is following Christ, now it's up to you to determine that. If the pastor is following Christ, then get in there and follow the pastor. If the pastor is not following Christ, first thing you should do is pray for the pastor. The next thing you should do is approach the pastor and say, Pastor, are you sure this is the right direction we should be going? And uh, maybe present a creative uh, thought or alternative. But if you're sure the pastor is following the Lord, if he's following Christ, then get in there and follow the pastor. Everyone play follow the leader and we'll eventually get to where we're going. So uh, look also at verse 24, right at the end of the chapter. Salute all them that have the rule 
over you. So there's three times in the one chapter Paul is referring to uh, the spiritual, the God-given spiritual leaders. And here he's saying to obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourself. I have long maintained that the relationship between pastor and church people is similar to that of husband and wife. Now in the home, God set the husband to be the head of the home. Why? To care for his wife, to watch over her, and to give himself for her. And uh, God set the wife to obey her husband and to work together with him so as they can build a wonderful home where God can be honored. Now the question we need to ask ourselves is when it comes to the church, uh, in the light of obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourself, would it please God if church people submitted themselves to the spiritual guidance of their pastor? Would that please God? Now, we just came through verse 15 and 16, particularly where God said that uh, if we give to support his causes, it's well-pleasing to him. We looked at Colossians, where in the home, the children, if they give submission to their parents, it's well-pleasing to the Lord. And so this is something that we have to deal with, because I'll tell you right up front, in the average relationship, no one wants to submit. In the average relationship, People only submit if they're forced to. And of course, we see that in military. I don't want to salute that guy. I despise that guy. Hey, he's your captain. You got to salute. If you don't salute him, you know, you go in, in the, the brink. They throw you in the clink. They throw you in that, that box with bars on it or something. Or you get some kind of dishonorable <clears throat> whatever. Now, all right, okay, if I have to, I will. And they salute the guy. Uh, but in home and family... Um, submission is a dirty word. No one seems to want to submit. And we have that in our churches as well. It's a problem we seem to have in North America. We're so politically correct. We're so whatever we are that I think that we've ruled out the word submission. In many, many weddings, wedding ceremonies, uh, the typical vows... Uh, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? Will you keep her and honor her and keep yourself for her and protect her? And, you know, for as long as you, yes, I will. And would you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? And uh, will you uh, submit to him? Oh, no. <laughs> Wait right there. Take that out of there. And there's so many, many wedding ceremonies where that becomes the battleground. And so they just avoid it completely. And so they start the, the marriage off on the wrong foot right away because there's no God-given order of things. So when we come to the church, I've long since believed that the church is similar to a husband and wife relationship between pastor and people, husband and wife, pastor and people, and together, like the husband and wife, they have children, the pastor and people bring forth ministries. And together we bring forth bus ministries. Together we bring forth soul-winning ministries. Together we bring forth uh, missions around the world ministries. Together we bring forth Bible college ministries. And on the list goes, pastor and people operate like a husband and wife in a home. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, would it please God if church people submitted themselves to the spiritual guidance of their pastor in the light of this verse 17? 
So Paul goes on. He says, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourself. And he gives us the reason. For they watch for your souls. How does that happen? How is it that the pastor can watch for my soul? I thought only Jesus could watch for my soul. Well, that's true that Jesus watches for your soul, but Jesus gets help. He is the shepherd. The pastor is known as like the under shepherd. Christ is the chief shepherd. A pastor is an under shepherd. In the book of Revelation, the seven churches, the pastors there are referred to as angels, the angel of the church of Ephesus, the angel of the church of Philippi, and so on. But uh, they do watch for your souls with prayer and with preaching and with counsel. Sim again, similar to a husband watching over and protecting his wife. Uh, so let's see it again. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for, yourself, for, your, for your souls. Uh-oh, look at this. As they that must give account. There's a day coming when every pastor, including this one here, will stand before Jesus Christ and give account account of the church, account of his pastoring methods, account of the things he did, and account of the people that God brought uh, in, into his ministry, into the church. I will one day stand before Jesus Christ, and I will give account for every single person in the church. Did you know the same thing's going to happen for every husband of every family? Did you know that? And no husband will ever, st I'm talking about the Christian ones now, no husband will ever go before Jesus and say, well, now, Lord Jesus, I, I would have been the head of the home, but, you know, my wife, uh, you know, she, she, she had other thoughts, and so I, I wanted peace in the home, so I let her be the head of the home. There's no excuse there, because God set him to be the head of the home. If he abdicated that, and uh, maybe his wife will be there and say, well, well Lord, he was a lousy uh, head. You know, I'm a better head than, than... He doesn't have a head for figures. He can't make decisions. Just look at him. You know, so someone's got to run the home. Well, maybe the, maybe the husband then needed to get some lessons. Maybe he needed some counsel. Maybe he needed some help. But God has divinely set in the home the husband to be the head of the home. And he will stand before the Lord and give account one day. Now, I know in a lot of churches, uh, there are lady pastors. You know that as well as I. And uh, how they ever read scripture <laughs> and justify that is beyond me. But they do. Sometimes people justify whatever they want. Um, say, what's going to happen there? Because, you know, there's some really good preacher, lady preachers. Boy, they can really... Uh, you know, move you out of your seat and uh, there's some good uh, lady leaders and so on. Uh, what do you do with something like that? Um, as we understand the scriptures now, this is God's word. This is not man's opinion. It's God's word. God has called men to be pastors. He hasn't called women to be pastors. That's not being chauvinistic. That's like God has called men with certain biological functions and jobs, and God has called women with other certain biological functions and jobs. They both have their strengths. They both have their weaknesses. But uh, men are to be men and remain men. Women are to be women and remain women. <clears throat> Any amens on that one? <laughs> yeah. Let me add my <laughs> along with yours. Mm, yeah. And so anyhow, uh, these uh, ladies who, who are saved, born again and saved, they love the Savior, they're going to stand before Jesus Christ and they're going to be speechless because they took a job that God never called them to. 
You mean to say that God can't call a woman to be a missionary? No, God calls women to be missionaries, but he doesn't call women to be pastors of churches. God doesn't call women to be deacons. You see, the thing is, so many men abdicate. Been, they've been called to leadership, but so many men abdicate that. And I'll give you a good illustration. Uh, a young guy sees a, a, a nice girl. He's got his eye on her. And he says, uh, <clears throat> would you go out with me? And she says, oh, all right. And uh, where are we going to go? It's going to be a surprise. Get yourself all ready. And uh, so he uh, does all of the planning. He picks a restaurant. He uh, gets the corsage, right? He, he, he plans everything, everything. And... Uh, even goes to the restaurant ahead of time and picks out the table, looks at the menu, you know what I'm saying? And so then uh, he comes and picks her up and she's all impressed, holds the door for her and uh, he's just in control of that whole evening. Well, time goes on and they get married. And uh, hey, now they're married. And so um, he, uh, he says to her, uh, you want to go out to dinner? And she says, yeah. And his very next question, proves that he's abdicated. Well, where do you want to go? All of a sudden now, it used to be, honey, just get yourself ready. Leave it to me. I'm going to look after every detail here. But now, where do you want to go? And that's the beginning of sorrows. He often doesn't even open the door for her anymore after they get married. You know, he gets in the car, come on, honey, honk, honk. <laughs> Hurry up, we're going to be late. Whereas he used to uh, escort her, you know, and open the door and all that, you know, knight in shining armor, stuff like that there, that girls still like. They still like that stuff. Anyhow, um, got a little sidetracked there. Sorry about that. But um, did you know that um, uh, the, the scriptures teach us that the pastor is going to be the one who gives account for the church? The deacons are not going to have to give account for the church. The church members are not going to have to give account for the church the way the pastor is going to have to give account for the church. Did you know it's a scary thing to be a pastor? You might not know that because I sometimes don't act very scared, but uh, sometimes when I think about it, I get scared that one day I'm going to have to stand before the Lord. Lately, I've been getting scared. Lately, I've been getting scared because God's been uh, talking to my heart about uh, getting better organized in the church. And uh, that's been scaring me because um, uh, normally uh, I would just try and do everything myself, but I can't do that. And so now I have to depend on others and I have to find others. And so uh, in these areas of ministries, I'm uh, looking for faithful men and women who can step up to bat and take over areas of ministry so that as a church, we can grow and develop. It's just like in a family, when mom and dad, you know, have the children. When the children are young, mom and dad do everything. But then you get a few more children in there, and sometimes mom and dad can't do everything, and they have to get the children to help. And that's proper, isn't it? Yes? Or should mom and dad continue to do everything, everything, and, you know, the kids are 20 and still feeding the kids and dressing them and... You no, know, they should learn to uh, do this themselves and they should learn to take on some responsibility. Okay, Billy Bob, uh, we're going to need you to uh, cut the grass out front and uh, uh, big, you know, big, big Joe, you're going to have to look after the, the grass out back and uh, Mary Sue, we're going to need you to help uh, do all of the windows and the jobs have to be divided up. 
you hear about these families that have 12 and 15 children and uh, boy, everyone's put to work. And come laundry day, you know, it's, uh, it's a kind of a joy to watch the process. Everyone does something, you know, and they, like little ants and they get the job done. Well, in a church, it's the same. The Lord's been taking me to task lately, this year, anyhow, 2018, specifically over the uh, organizational chart. And I, uh, I asked uh, my wife if she would do us up a chart and show us all of the names of all of the people that are involved in some way, fashion, whatever, some kind of job, some kind of ministry. And she, she brought me this paper that folded out and folded out and folded out. And I said, what's this? And I started looking at all of the names of the people that are involved with choir, the people that are involved with bus ministry, with the Bible college, um, with missions, um, with, uh, uh, did I say bus ministry? Yeah, okay, well, anyhow, you get the idea. And then uh, there's uh, temple keepers, and then there's nursery, and then there's uh, uh, ushers, and then there's greeters and uh, snack providers, and, and so on, and all these names, all these names, all these names. Well, who's looking after these groups? And so the Lord's really been getting after me on that, and so I've been getting scared. So on the one hand, I'm just waiting for the Lord to call us home, but on the other hand, I'm not ready because I don't think our spiritual house is in order enough. I'm trying to, you know... Okay, give me a little more time here, Lord. So I have to give account. I have to give account to the Lord for the church, the condition the church is in, and how well we functioned and operated with the, the manpower and the money and the time and, and the materials and everything he's blessed us with. I have to give account for that. Okay, so that's a scary thing. So look at the verse again. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give account. Pastors must give a detailed report to Jesus one day in heaven. It will happen. But did you know something? That pastors don't wait till they're in heaven to give a report. Did you know that? <clears throat> this is one of those little pastor secrets. But all through the week after week, after week, after week, pastors get alone with Jesus in the prayer closet and talk things over with Jesus. And in the prayer closet, the pastor's already giving reports to Jesus on the people in his church. And um, the pastors talk things over with Jesus. He talks to Jesus about the healthy. He talks to Jesus about the sick. He talks to Jesus about the faithful. He talks to Jesus about the backslidden. He talks to Jesus about the happy and the sad and the good and the bad and the list goes on. And so the pastor does give account as the days and weeks and months go on. Now, Paul goes on and he says here, as they must give account, that they may do it with joy. And I think ultimately Paul is talking about that one day in heaven when pastors will stand before Jesus and he'll say, uh, looking for uh, Steve White, is he here? Is he here? And of course he's hiding be behind, you know, some pastor. I see you, you can run, but you can't hide. Come here. And so, uh, yes, sir. And I stand before the Lord Jesus. All right, now I, I put you as the pastor of Grace Baptist Church. <clears throat> what have you got to say? Now, I don't know what I might do because you're going to be there. We're all going to be there. I might turn to you and say, okay, everyone from Grace Baptist Church, stand up. 
And maybe some of you won't stand up either. <laughs> but we're going to be there. And I'll need to give account. So every single person connected with Grace Baptist Church, I'll need to give account for. Okay? So that's kind of scary. Um, but it's going to happen. But it says here that they may do it with joy. Now think about it. What do you think would make a pastor happy about his people? If you would turn to the right, just a few pages, to 3 John, here's, here's an answer for you. 3 John, and go to chapter 1. Third John chapter 1. Everyone in chapter 1? Just, just checking to see if you're actually turning there. Okay, verse 4. <clears throat> Read it out loud with me, please. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Okay, that was most people. That's good. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. That was John writing that. And that's uh, one great area of joy for any pastor is that uh, his people are walking in the truth, the truth of the Word of God. The Word of God has become so precious and meaningful to them that they're living their lives in the light of the Word of God. Now that is a cause for rejoice because that is what the Lord wants. He wants all of us to walk in his truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right. And he said, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you what? Free. Right. And so this is a definitely something here that would bring great joy. By the way, in Psalm 133, I believe it is verse 1, it talks about unity. You know, how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And so a church where the people are walking in truth and living in unity... Hey, you've just found a little bit of heaven on earth. Now, there's a church you want to be part of. As far as I know, I think we're, we're getting there. As far as I know, I think we're in hot pursuit of walking in the truth and walking in unity. And so uh, I'm pretty happy about that. I don't think we've arrived, folks, but I think that we're in hot pursuit. We're going the right direction. So Paul writes here that they may do it with joy. Now look at the next four words. And not with, what's that word? Grief. Grief. Do you see it? Are you back in Hebrews? Hebrews in verse 17, chapter 13, grief. Now, why didn't he say sorrow? Why did he say grief? He just said joy. I thought the opposite of joy was sorrow. Apparently not. Apparently it's grief. Apparently, there's something worse than sorrow. It's called grief. Joy and grief seem to be just about the opposite ends of the spectrum. What is grief? Grief is more than just sorrow. Listen to this. Grief is a crippling emotional pain and anguish over loss and sorrow. Grief is a crippling emotional pain and anguish. And it's sometimes seen at funerals, isn't it? Isn't that right? Not every funeral is a happy occasion. We had a funeral on Tuesday, yesterday. Our dear sister Lorraine Clark went home to be with the Lord August 30th. 89 years God gave her, blessed her with. 
She was a joy to have. I was sorrow, sorrowful. I was sorry to when she moved to, up north there to Fort, Fort uh, St. John, wasn't it? Nelson, I knew that. Thank you. <laughs> no, I'd forgotten Fort Nelson. And so um, she was up there for the, the remaining couple of years, I guess, of her life. And uh, Miss Lorraine, but <clears throat> so happy I'm going to see her again. And uh, she's with the Savior now, and she's rejoicing around the throne. Her sorrows are all behind her, aches and pains and all that stuff, never again. She's with Jesus, and I'm so happy for her. But I've been at other funerals, and I've seen people crippled up with uh, grief, people who have not known the Savior, and maybe where the, uh, the deceased wasn't saved. And those are tough funerals. You know, what do you say? Well, if they had only believed in Jesus, they'd been in heaven. But too bad they're in the pit of hell right now. That's no way to conduct a funeral. There's no comfort there. People liable to send you after them or <laughs> something like that. So, you know, you try to give comfort where you can. But I've been to a lot of funerals over the years. And uh, some of them, some people are just overwhelmed with grief. Um, it's more than sorrow, isn't it? You see grief. Now, interesting that he would use that. Say, why would he use that? Why wouldn't it just be sorrow? Because I, here's why. I think when we get to heaven, our eyes are going to be open so wide. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to realize the opportunities that we let slip through our little fingers here on earth. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to realize afresh and anew, and it's going to hit us like a ton of bricks. Wow. We had one life. We could have done so much for the Lord Jesus. There's a true story about a guy named Schindler who helped a bunch of Jews to escape Nazi death in the Second World War. They made a movie about it. And apparently, uh, near the end, when um, uh, the end of the war was coming and Schindler had to go off into hiding, um, he began to realize how much more he could have done to help people and save their lives. And this is why I think that word is in there, folks. It's because when we get to heaven, it's, it's going to hit us like a ton of bricks. And there's going to be the joy of being able to report glowing reports to Jesus on church people. And then there's going to be grief, grief for some others. I think that's exactly why it's in the scriptures there. Mm. Well, Paul goes on, he says, that is unprofitable for you. That means there's no profit on earth. There's no profit in heaven. Now, this is if, if the pastor has to make a report filled with grief to the Lord Jesus. No profit on earth, no profit on heaven, nothing that God can bless, nothing that God can reward, just a loss. And that's why I think there's grief there. Well, we've got to wrap this up. Paul is giving us our, our last, our final of the four admonitions, and he says to be careful to maintain Christian behavior, which includes good works, which includes submission to God-given spiritual authorities. But now quickly, the last two verses here, Christian behavior includes fervent prayer. It does, it does, as I'm standing here before you, it does. Good Christian behavior involves fervent prayer. If you want to have good Christian behavior, you need to have a good prayer life. Verse 18, well, look at those th first three words. What are they? Say it with me. Pray for us. That's Paul and company. Paul and company. I want you to see the power of prayer. Any of God's people can pray. 
all of God's people ought to pray. It's absolutely the will of God for every Christian everywhere to pray. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2.8, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now they say there's three types of prayer. Number one is the prayer for your own personal needs. Oh Lord, heal my back. Oh Lord, give me food for today. Oh Lord, please give me a job. Give me a car. There's number one, prayer for your own needs. Number two, there's prayer for those around you. Lord, bless my wife. Bless my son. Bless my friend. Oh Lord, please, I pray for my my boss at work who's not saved. Those are people in your little circle. And then number three, there's prayer for people that you do not know. Prayer for people that may be in the city or halfway around the world. You've never met them. And maybe you wouldn't even know them if you did meet them. But there's prayer. And that's called intercession. He says, pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience. Paul was for sure living in the will of God and not his own will. If you and I are living in our own will, we cannot have a good conscience. Our conscience will will bother us. Uh, It'll begin to haunt us if we start living for ourselves. But as we live for the Lord, we have a good conscience, a clean conscience. Paul said, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. So nothing deceitful, right? Nothing deceitful, nothing dishonest, be it in money or relationships or ministry. And I'll tell you, it's not that hard to live a dishonest life in the ministry. There are pastors of churches that spend way more time on the golf course through the week than they do in the study of God's Word, in the preaching of God's Word, or in the prayer closet, all combined and put together. They're out on a golf course way, way too much. Anything wrong with golf? No. If you know how to play the game, I suppose it's, it's fine. But there's a balance. There's a balance, isn't there? It's like uh, going on the internet and doing a little surfing or something or a study, whatever, and uh, nothing wrong with that. But what if you're spending 12, 14 hours a day stuck in front of that thing? Bit too much, don't you think? Anything wrong with having a little dessert after supper? No, probably not. But what if all you ever ate were desserts? Ooh, you see, there's a problem with that. And so... In most areas of life, people, people can be deceitful. People can be dishonest. And so Paul was writing, in, and he, he said, in all things, willing to live honest. You know, in other words, I think what Paul was saying when he said, pray for us, he was saying that they were worthy, a worthy cause for the prayers. Verse 19, but I beseech you rather to do this. Now he's talking about prayer, and I just want you to see it's the urgency of prayer. Write down Romans 15.30. Romans 15.30. Now, that's a powerful verse about prayer. And in it, Paul, Paul he, he beseeches the, the, the Christians at Rome that they would strive together with him in their prayers to God for him. Sometimes people write books, crazy books on prayer, and they kind of give you the impression that prayer should just be the most natural, you know, Zen Buddhist almost, cross your legs and, you know, get into a lotus position and just kind of pray and be all sort of, you know, nice feely. That's not prayer. Prayer is often a battle. 
It's often a battlefield, is what prayer is, real prayer. And <laughs> there's an urgent need for that. He says, I beseech you rather to do this. And in Romans 15:30, he comes right out and he says to strive together. The definite verse there on the power of striving. An urgent need right now for Christians to learn to become prayer warriors. Prayer warriors for others. Prayer warriors for those we do not know personally. We hear about them. We hear about them such as the people that our missionaries are witnessing to. Over in uh, uh, parts of the world, in Asia and in Africa, down in America, across Canada. People that you and I will never meet, but we hear about them through our missionaries. And they say, uh, pray for this person, they're close to salvation. Pray for that person. And these are people that we've never met. And yet when we get alone with God and we bring their names up before him. Lately, we've been praying for a tiny little baby that we've never met. A little baby who doesn't even know her own name. A tiny little thing called Mila, born with some kind of major heart defect and she should have died. The hospital here told the parents, she will die. There's nothing that anyone can do for her. So they took her to another hospital and they said, well, we'll try. Insurance paid for it. This is down in Seattle. Cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and God provided the insurance. We prayed and God kept the baby alive unto the surgery and made the surgery a success and the baby is in the recovery mode. And hallelujah. We've never met that baby Mila. We wouldn't know her if we saw her, if we held her. We wouldn't know that was baby Mila. But one day... Baby Mila's going to run around. And you know, one day in heaven, she's going to come up to us and thank us for praying. One day, there is an urgent need for Christian men and women to learn how to become prayer warriors. Now, he says, I beseech you that, that you, you rather to do this, that I may be restored to you sooner. You see, Paul was in prison when he was writing this. And I just want you to see that again, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Do you see that? That I may be restored to you the sooner. If you pray, and I beseech you to pray, I'll be restored to you the sooner. Prayer makes things happen that wouldn't normally happen. That's important to know. Prayer still changes things. The hand of Almighty God is in prayer. And God has given us a Bible full of promises in which he encourages us to pray. We're done. And I, I, I got to say this that we're just about at the end of Paul's fabulous book. And the last of his four admonitions we've looked at tonight, to be careful to maintain Christian behavior, and it includes good works, it includes submission to spiritual leaders, and it includes fervent prayer. And as a pastor, I can tell you right now how important these last three things really are. And I'm going on 40 years in ministry, and I can tell you after those years of experience that these things are important. And if we ever want to be a great church in the eyes of God, if we ever want to be well-pleasing to our God, we must be a church that does lots and lots of good works. We must be a church that practices spiritual submission. And we must be a church that prays and prays and prays. And tonight, I want you to ask yourself this question. Are any of these three things missing in my life? Are any of these three things very small or tiny in my life? 
good works, spiritual submission, or fervent prayer.